smear socialist he's a millionaire. He's worth two hundred million dollars. Maniac, capitalist. We don't like Donald Trump. He's a racist. That's going to get in your face with his five golden watches. Tool, me- megalomaniac. To tell you the truth about what's going to help people. I kind of don't people. want you to be bought. That's a red flag. Now that's not I am on board for Medicare. That's for current all. defense spending. That's what we're spending on our that's military. That's America, invented by the right wing. It's the liberal bull show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Liberal Bull Show. That's right, the first edition of the Liberal Bull Show podcast. Um, where should we start here? Well, I guess I should probably talk about um, where this podcast came from. Um, so I'm assuming that most people watching this uh, are coming from my YouTube show, and then I'm also getting a lot of people that are probably tuning in for the first time. Um, so for those of you who have not heard of the Liberal Bull Show before... Um, I'm Liberal Bull, and I run a show on YouTube called The Liberal Bull Show, uh, which is a current events kind of political talk show where we talk about politics, current events, things like that uh, in the United States. Um, so for a while, I've wanted to have a podcast format of the show, uh, just again, kind of expand what I'm doing. Um, so now, here is the podcast. <laughs> so... Yes, uh, this is going to be similar to my YouTube show. Uh, if you'd like to check it out, uh, you can go to YouTube. Uh, we're just Liberal Bull, and again, if you'd like to follow that, uh, you can obviously do that. Um, but so, in this show, we're going to be doing, again, kind of little segments, political topics. I might do interviews from time to time. Uh, about politics in the United States. So, uh, again, I'd, I'd maybe like to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Liberal Bull. I'm from the proud state of Pennsylvania here in the United States. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty liberal. Uh, I'm a progressive. You know, I am more on the libertarian left side of things. Uh, but I am not afraid to criticize both political parties, both ideologies, uh, especially here in the United States. You know, I, I criticize Donald Trump conservatives very often. At the same time, I criticize Democratic leadership and the corporate influence on the Democrats as well. So, you know, this is, again, the title of the show is The Liberal Bull Show. So you might think, oh, he's just a lefty. But, you know, at the same time, I am not afraid to criticize anybody and go after any wrongdoing, uh, politically speaking. So, you know, I thought for today's edition of the show, we would talk about capitalism, um, at least in this first portion here. Um, oh, by the way, before we get into the topic, I would just like to say about scheduling for the show, how I am going to do this. Um, well, depending on where you follow this podcast, uh, it should all be the same. But I think every week, probably on Wednesday, I'm going to upload a version of this podcast. I'm hoping for each iteration to be anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes long. Um, and again, you can just, on any of your podcast uh, formats, you should be able to listen to this show without any problems. Um, so yes, let's jump into our topic today. Today we're going to be talking about uh, capitalism um, because you know it, it's always been very interesting to me. Uh, there's always been this this you know uh, American exceptionalistic view uh, here in the United States on capitalism, right? You know, it, it's interesting that you know there's a lot of Americans who I think after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They really feel like capitalism is this great system, right? You have people that uh, are very afraid of other systems. You know, every time you hear something like socialism 
or communism. Those terms seem to get conflated quite frequently. Um, but you see people that have you know a lot of animosity toward those terms, and it's it's just always been interesting to me that we like to defend the system of capitalism here in the United States. So let's look at the truth about capitalism and what it has resulted in here in the United States. Okay, um, there's 30 million people without health insurance. Okay, we have um, you know when we look around, we've got. The, the top 1% making up now half of all gains uh, economically. And, you know, half of Americans are poor or low income. Think about that for a minute. The United States is the richest country on the planet, but half of Americans are poor uh, or low income. I mean, that's just, you know, what do you call a system that renders half of its citizens poor low income. That's a failed system. Uh, and it's just incredible that we like to defend a system with all these flaws. And again, you know, the, the kind of counter argument to that is people look around and they say, look at all the great things that capitalism has created. Look, we've got all these big corporations. And yeah, that's great. There are aspects of capitalism that are fantastic. But if we look at certain aspects, look at healthcare, look at, you know, the insurance industry, there is just banking. You know, it's hard to defend a system with all of these flaws. And so, you know, keep in mind that even in the United States, we don't have pure capitalism. Um, there's government intervention on all sorts of levels. And so to say that we have pure capitalism is just nonsense. But uh, going along uh, with capitalism, uh, you know, I hinted at this earlier, but it seems to be in the United States that we have this animosity uh, toward socialism, toward communism. Uh, these terms uh, are kind of conflated. And so I would like to talk about these two terms. So here I have uh, pulled up the definition definition of uh, socialism because it's, again, you know, it's interesting uh, how in the United States uh, it, it, it appears as if there is this animosity toward uh, socialism because I feel like a lot of Americans don't necessarily know what socialism is. You know, you hear a lot of people in the news, in the media, saying how bad socialism is. You hear people like Lindsey Graham calling uh, AOC uh, communist. So let's talk about socialism, capitalism, communism, what those terms mean. So we're going to start with a pretty basic one here. We're going to start with socialism. What is the definition of socialism? Here, so here I have uh, Webster's Dictionary. Uh, socialism, a political and economic theory of social organization, organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. So that's saying that you know the community should control the means of production. So for example, you know, if, if we use the United States, McDonald's, um, Apple, Google, all these companies would be collectively owned by the people. So, you know, that's, that's just a broad ver uh, uh, definition of socialism. So, you know, what's interesting to me is when, when people call uh, certain politicians here in the United States uh, socialists, this is the actual definition of socialism. So it's interesting to me when 
people on the right wing here in the United States like to point at people like Bernie Sanders, point at people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, and call them socialists. Um, that's just, that's factually incorrect. I'd like somebody to uh, tell me when Bernie Sanders has said the government should overtake McDonald's and Apple and Google, okay, that's, or AOC. Has, has AOC ever said that the government should take over Walmart? Uh, no. So <laughs> it's just interesting to me how people like to conflate those terms. So that's, that's socialism. Okay, now let's look at the definition of communism. So here we have, again, we're looking at the, the, the dictionary definition, uh, communism, a political theory derived from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading uh, to society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. So what this is saying, essentially, uh, if we read between the lines, um, so it's taking a class war, so it's saying, you know, when you have a society that has uh, wealth inequality at, ex at extreme measures, that sounds awful, awful familiar, does it? Um, so it, it says when you have that, that will eventually lead to all property being publicly owned with each person getting taken care of. So, you know, again, communism is, is uh, it says political uh, ideology here. I would agree. It's more of a philosophy and, um, you know, people like to uh, take communism and use, and again, pit it at uh, political opponents. Like I, you know, again, Lindsey Graham went on Fox and Friends and Friends and Friends and he liked to, he, he said, you know, AOC and this squad are a bunch of communists. Um, no, they're not. Again, do you think that AOC is advocating for a class war? Is she, but, and, and again, you look at somebody like AOC, she's not a communist and she's not a socialist. Um, she's a social democrat. And that's something that we need to get, that's, again, this is why I, I am a huge advocate for somebody like Bernie Sanders, because he's talking about, you know, what we need to do going forward. And he's not afraid to talk about socialism, to talk about uh, capitalism, to talk about communism and these different systems. And he calls himself a social democrat or, you know, democratic socialist. Those terms are used uh, interchangeably. Um, but it's interesting, you know, he's not afraid to call himself a social democrat. The only problem with that is everybody that's against Bernie Sanders uh, removes the, demo the, the democracy part of that and they just call him a socialist. Again, uh, show me when Bernie Sanders has advocated taking over the means of production in all industries. That's just, he's, he's never advocated for that. Take a sip of tea here. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just, it's interesting that that is the case in the United States. That, and I, again, I wanted to kind of inform people, and I try to do my best at informing people, because I visited this past summer a social democracy. I went to Taiwan, which is a country uh, off the coast of China. Uh, they're very productive. Uh, they don't have a deficit. They have um, universal health care. They invest heavily in infrastructure. And it's a social democracy. There is still a free market. You know, they still have companies that uh, are operated autonomously from the government. Uh, but then again, the government does control certain aspects of uh, production. For example, the healthcare system is managed by the government. 
but their philosophy is there's certain aspects which a free market cannot properly take care of. And I would argue the same thing. That's a social democracy. It's a fusion system between something like socialism and something like capitalism, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a fusion between the free market and the government and saying in certain areas, a free market is wonderful. The things that it can lead to are wonderful. But in certain areas where the free market fails, we need government intervention. And that's what people like AOC and Bernie Sanders are advocating for. That's something that I am an advocate for. Because again, you know, I, 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 when I visited Taiwan, um, they, their, their utilities were owned and operated by the government. And it always is interesting to me if you know, the government fully owned the utilities, do you think that the Flint water crisis would have happened here in the United States? Probably not. Um, and over there, you know, their water bill in Taiwan is 3 $4 a month. Their electric bill, same thing. Uh, and again, when you talk to people and you explain to them how it works, I'm sure many people in the United States would like their water bill to be a couple dollars a month. And I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't mind paying a few dollars a month for electricity. See, and... That is an example of, again, the government isn't out to make a, a profit. It's there to take care of its citizens. A company run by the free market is trying to turn a profit. So that's the difference between the free market. So there's some basic necessities that should be managed by the government. And if you look at countries that have the government manage these certain services, in many ways, they're efficient and they're less expensive. Uh, again, and there, they, their recycling program is fantastic. It's managed by the federal government, and you know, again, they, they, they do not, ha they didn't have a water crisis like we did in the United States, where a, a city, a small city in Michigan, got poisoned. They didn't have that. Um, so that's that's a social democracy, and that is, I just want, I want to really, when you hear people in the media, uh, on the right, when they, they like to smear people, call them socialists, call them communists, look at the facts and determine for yourself whether or not they're a socialist or not. Because I'm, I'm telling you, just about everybody in mainstream politics, Bernie Sanders, AOC, you know, any, just put any, insert any politician's name, they're, you know, most of them are not socialists and they're certainly not communists. So we just want to get that out there. Um, and again, you know, how has this happened? How have we had this animosity toward these names? Well, you know, I'm going to quote Noam Chomsky here. Uh, first of all, I think it's an issue with the media in this country. You know, again, Noam Chomsky, the, one of the, the most influential people in politics that, that certainly, uh, I, I, in my opinion, uh, Noam Chomsky, he said, you know, any dictator would be completely happy with the submissiveness of the United States media. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting that the mainstream media in this corporation, right, your cable media, your print media, you know, you, you look at companies like, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, uh, they're on board for every major war. They are all against Medicare for all. And why is that? Well, the main contributors to CNN are pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, Boeing is a major contributor to CNN. You know, why is it that when I turn on CNN, I'm seeing an advertisement for Boeing? You know, am I going to buy a jet someday? No, it's because they're getting advertisement money from Boeing. And what is Boeing? Well, they're a mili they have contracts with the United States government uh, to build airplanes for the United States government. So 
Again, the media, which is supposed to tell you the truth about war, is getting paid by a company that advocates for war. Just something to think about. So again, the, the media doesn't like a social democracy. Because what is a social democracy? Well, a social democracy means some government intervention. So a gov- government intervention means we're going we're gonna to regulate your free press. You know, we're going we're gonna to regulate campaign finance. Uh, and that's, again, that's not status quo. So why do you think your media companies are against social democracy? Well, that's why. So that is why when you turn on MSNBC and you see Rachel Maddow and Chuck Todd and Donnie Deutsch especially railing on about these random, you know, how bad socialism is, you know, we can't elect these people. Uh, The reason why they're railing on about that is because look at the people that fund those media channels. Complete conflict of interest. And that happens on both sides. You know, people like to tell me that MSNBC, CNN, it's the liberal news. People like to tell me that Fox News is conservative news. And I say, no, that's wrong. If you look at them ideologically speaking, socially, Yes, sure. MSNBC is liberal. Fox News is conservative. But if you look at fiscally, there's very little difference between those two news stations. Now, Fox News, you know, we could get into the argument of the propaganda that they do for the, you know, Trump's wing of the party. But at the same time, look at MSNBC and CNN during the Barack Obama years. They were submissive in the same way that Fox News is. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about socialism, you know, communism, capitalism, and, and kind of inform you on, on my beliefs as, you know, as to how we got here and inform you on the, the, the actual terminology and how people misuse these terms because it's, it's incredibly misleading and it's actually uh, quite astonishing. Now, again, I'd like to end this segment um, with some, some polling data. So, Uh, This polling by Pew Research found that 51% of millennials no longer support the system of capitalism. That's pretty insane. So you got 51% of an entire generation does not support capitalism. That's, again, and you might say millennials are super liberal. There's a lot of evidence to support that they're not as liberal as people make them out to be. But but anyway, so so 51% of millennials don't support capitalism. Here's one. In 2016... Uh, 48% of Iowa Democratic caucus, caucus voters considered themselves social Democrats. 48%. So that's, you know, a quarter of the state of Iowa. <laughs> of Iowa. You know, not, not California, not Massachusetts, of Iowa. A quarter of Iowans call themselves social Democrats. That's pretty interesting. Uh, so this is the Liberal Bull Show. Everything you need to know. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, it's Liberal Bull here. I'd just like to remind everybody to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter, at Liam the Bull. Um, I'd like to start doing a question-answer period on the show in the not-too-distant future, so if you have any questions, be sure to email them to liberalbullshow at gmail.com.
Yes, we're back with the Liberal Bull Show. That's right. Um, so after that little bit uh, where we talked about socialism, capitalism, communism, uh, I'd kind of like to do more of a current events thing. That was just kind of you know my uh, ramble on for the day. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we're going to get into some current events, at least recently, you know, because this is the first podcast. So I'd kind of like to cover some news from maybe the, the previous month. Um, so I'm going to kind of go in reverse order here. So, you know, as of recently, at least last week, as we, you know, when I'm recording this, um, the 2019 special elections happened, or I guess off year elections, uh, however you want to look at it. Um, so the, the, the 2019 elections happened. Uh, there were a lot of important races. I'm going to focus on just a couple here. Uh, the, the big one for me is that New York approved in local elections for rank choice voting. Uh, now, I'm a huge advocate for ranked choice voting because it actually helps third parties. Uh, you know, in the United States, it's interesting we have uh, two main parties. Uh, you know, you go to other countries. Again, I was in Taiwan. They have two liberal parties. Here in the United States, we have two conservative parties. You know, it's it's one corporate party with two social policies. That's how I like to view it. Um, but New York voted in, in favor of ranked choice voting. Well, what is ranked choice voting? Well, the way that ranked choice voting works is I get to rank my choices whenever I go into the polls. So let's say in 2016, I wanted to vote in uh, the uh, elections. And so if I had ranked choice voting, I'd go to the polls. And let's say I, w I was going to vote for who I wanted for president. So let's say my first choice was somebody that I actually believed in, right? Jill Stein. Jill Stein is my first choice. So she's number one. She's number one on my choice. But let's say my second choice is Hillary Clinton. So I mark for my second choice, Hillary Clinton. And let's say my third choice is, you know, really, I don't like Gary Johnson, but he'd be my third choice over Trump. So, okay, I mark off G Gary Johnson for my third choice. So that's, and then, and then let's say that's it, right? I don't have a fourth choice. That's it. Those are my votes. So what happens is uh, those votes are counted up, and whenever they report, report the votes for your state, what they do is they look at each ballot, and let's say that Jill Stein uh, overall did not win the popular vote in that state. So her vote, her votes would all get removed from that state, and then it'd go to your second ballot. And then, you know, they'd count up all of Hillary Clinton's votes. If she won the majority, then she would win the state. So that, that's how rank choice voting works, uh, is it, it, it allows you to actually rank your choices for how you, you know, how much you believe in each candidate. And again, there's, you know, there's people that could better explain rank choice voting, you know, probably better than I, I can. Well, definitely better than I can. But um, it, it gives third parties a chance, right? Because, you know, the, the whole arbitrary numbers for third parties to make debates and things or the amount of percentages that they get in elections. So um, they could still use the percent that they win in a ranked choice voting law. And again, in local elections, that's huge, right? Because there's, there's a lot of people in local elections where third parties could be a lot more competitive. And with ranked choice voting, uh, third parties could definitely be more involved in United States politics. So New York approved ranked choice voting. Um, the Democrats took control of in the 2019 elections here, uh, Democrats took control of the Virginia uh, state legislature. So uh, Virginia has had an all-Republican state legislature since the 90s. <laughs> um, so in 2019, Democrats took control of the state house and the state senate, and their governor is a Democrat. So they have complete control of Virginia. Uh, the Democrats do, so they took over Virginia. That's kind of interesting. Uh, what's big about that is, again, my whole thing all along, as I've said, 
the more that Democrats take over state houses, the more that they get to draw congressional districts. So, uh, and they've, you know, again, one of the things that the, many Democrats ran on in Virginia was that they are going to have an independent uh, council draw up their congressional districts. So, you know, that's what happened in Virginia. Democrats took control of Virginia. Uh, Virginia is a pretty blue state by now, but um, just some interesting news there. Uh, some other news, Republicans uh, took control of, well, they, they had control of, but they won the Mississippi governor's race. Uh, not much surprise there, although uh, that race was supposed to be a little bit closer. Um, and the big one of the night is uh, Kentucky. What happened in Kentucky? Uh, Kentuckians were voting for their governor, and they selected a Democrat to serve as their next governor. Um for those of you who don't know what happened in Kentucky, uh, so Matt Bevin was their incumbent uh, governor. He served uh, as a governor. He was a big Trump-supporting candidate. Uh, he did a lot of horrible things in his state. He cut uh, a lot of social programs. He also made Kentucky a right-to-work state. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, and then he also, you know, he's, he's very corrupt. So uh, in this election, uh, Andy Brashear, a Democrat, I was able to win against him. Now, again, I always make the case he only won by 5,000 votes, which was like, I think, 0.4% of the vote. Uh, so he didn't win by a lot. And I, I understand, you know, a win is a win is a win. Uh, but even still, uh, it's just incredible uh, that people are going to vote against partisan lines. But and he did win. Um, also in Kentucky, their attorney general, they elected the first African-American uh, to on any state position in Kentucky. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, they elected an African American to represent them <clears throat> in the in Kentucky. Um, some other news that I have on the docket. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about Beto O'Rourke. Uh, this is the week before uh, Beto O'Rourke dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. Uh, yay, right? I mean, nobody was excited for him. I mean, I certainly wasn't. Um, it's interesting to me, you know, Beto O'Rourke. For those of you who don't know. Uh, Beto O'Rourke ran for Senate in Texas in 2018, right? He was uh, he was this congressional representative from El Paso. He represented the congressional district around El Paso, Texas, uh, and he decided to run for t run for Senate. Now, if we, I did a video on the YouTube show talking about Beto O'Rourke and how he's a corporate fraud, you know, you look at his voting record when he was a congressman from Tech from El Paso, which is a very 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 safe Democratic district. That's been con controlled by a Democrat uh, ever since that district was created. All but one term, it was controlled by a Democrat. Um, and yet, Beto O'Rourke, representing that district, there were several instances he voted uh, for the on, on the fossil fuel industries. He broke the fossil fuel pledge, took money from uh, oil companies. You might argue that it's Texas. I don't care. You know that's not cool. Um, and overall, he had a very conservative voting record for the liberal district that he represented. Uh, but he ran for Senate in 2018, uh, and he couldn't beat Ted Cruz, okay? So I understand it's Texas whatever, but l l let's, let me put it this way. Beto O'Rourke lost to Ted Cruz, and Ted Cruz lost to Donald Trump in 2016. So Beto O'Rourke lost to the guy that lost to Donald Trump. Yeah, let's run him. <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, so, and I understand, yes, again, it was Texas. He only came within two points. But, again, I don't care. That's just the, the irony there is, is, is crazy. 
Uh, but when he ran for Senate, there's a lot of people, because a lot of people hate Ted Cruz, the senator that uh, Beto O'Rourke was running against. I mean, myself included, uh, Ted Cruz is just your standard snake oil salesman Republican who uh, is an idiot, uh, except Ted Cruz is very conservative, constitutionalist, uh, maniac. You know, Al Franken had this really great quote. He said, uh, you know, Ted Cruz is like that coworker that microwaves fish in the lunchroom. You know, we hate him. <laughs> and a lot of people do hate Ted Cruz. So <clears throat> Beto O'Rourke got a lot of attention in 2018 when he ran for Senate. So after he lost to Ted Cruz, he decided to run for president. Now, I make the argument that, Ted, that, that Beto O'Rourke should have never run for president. He should have run for Senate again because there was an election for the Senate seat in 2018. And there's John Cornyn, the other senator from Texas, is running for re-election in 2020. Beto O'Rourke should have run for Senate again in 2020. Why? Well, here we have Real Clear Politics polling. Uh, John Cornyn is less popular than Ted Cruz. Now, how you can be less popular than Ted Cruz, I have no idea. But John Cornyn, the other senator from Texas, is less popular than, than Ted Cruz. And Beto O'Rourke only lost by two percentage points. So he has a chance at winning in 2020, in winning a Senate seat, flipping it blue, which helps the Democrats take back the Senate. And he doesn't do that. What does he do? He runs for president of the United States. Now, before he dropped out, he was polling at 1%. 1%. So so, Ted, so so Beto O'Rourke completely wasted his career, his political career. He ran for Senate, lost, ran for president, and got 1%. I mean, how selfish, you know, and again, when, when Beto O'Rourke dis- declared he was running for president, he said, oh, I'm born to do this. Really? I mean, could you be more arrogant? So that's, that's Beto O'Rourke. Um, so he dropped out. Uh, this past week, uh, good for him. He didn't endorse anybody, and he said he's not running for any elections in Texas uh, because, you know, apparently when he ran for president, he was too liberal. Uh, no, you weren't, Beto. You didn't support Medicare for All, didn't support tuition-free college. When people pressed you on those issues, you gave your standard, well, look, you know, the pr- political answers. Uh, that's not what I'm looking for, Beto. Uh, so it's Beto O'Rourke. Uh, he's no longer running for president. Um, that being said, uh, while we're on the subject of 2020, uh, before we get to some of our other topics, um, you know, there's some interesting events that, uh, politically that have been happening. Uh, I read this article in the Washington Post that talked about how there were some Democrats in some key races, uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, Republicans in some key races that didn't raise as much money as they expected. That Susan Collins in Maine, uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, uh, that's, uh, who's it? Oh, Martha McSally in Iowa and Joni Ernest in Iowa. They, um, those are seats that Democrats are looking to take over in the 2020 Senate elections. And all of those candidates that I just mentioned who are incumbent Republicans, they, uh, received less money fundraising wise than their Democratic opponents, uh, this past quarter. So that's just kind of interesting, you know, going along with the, uh, the whole 2020 Senate elections. Um, and while we're on that subject, I'd like to just bring back to, I mentioned earlier that in the 2019 elections, which happened this past week, uh, Andy Brashear, a Democrat, won in Kentucky. Um, that's, that's kind of interesting to me because, you know, 
the 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 guy that Andy Brashear ran against was the least popular governor in the country. <laughs> he was the least popular governor in the country, and he was beat by a Democrat in Kentucky. Right. Well, in 2020, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is the he's running for re-election in 2020. Right. Well, he is the least popular senator, uh, and he is up for re-election. Uh, so, what does that say? Um, and by the way, his opponent, uh, Amy McGrath, a former fighter pilot, uh, could beat him. So that is that's pretty interesting there. Uh, by the way, uh, also uh, Amy McGrath, the person that's running against Mitch McConnell, raised more money than any Senate uh, on, on a single day than any Senate campaign in American history. She raised something like I think it was twenty million dollars. Absolutely ridiculous. So. You know, Democrats do have a chance of taking this, not only the Senate in 2020, but also kicking Mitch McConnell out of office, which would be absolutely uh, stupendous. Uh, let me take a sip of tea here. Um, and the last thing that I'd like to focus on, this will probably be like the last topic that we talk about today, is Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I'm a big fan of Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, for those of you who don't know Tulsi Gabbard, uh, she's running for president. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about Tulsi Gabbard, but I'd just like to talk about Tulsi Gabbard uh, and her history for a minute before we talk about these recent controversies. So, um, in 2016, when Bernie Sanders was running for president, Tulsi Gabbard was vice chair of the DNC, right? She was vice chair of the DNC. It's a very, very, very powerful position. But the chair of the DNC, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, was colluding with the Hillary Clinton campaign, right? They were giving debate questions to Hillary Clinton. They were directing all of the funds from the DNC to Hillary Clinton. And they were holding less debates. That was what the DNC was doing. So Tulsi Gabbard confronted Debbie Wasserman Schultz and said, hey, you know, I, we, we can't do this. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the establishment Democrats in the DNC said, no, we, we're doing this. You know, we're on board for Hillary Clinton. And so what did Tulsi Gabbard do? Well, she did one of the most courageous things politically. She resigned from the DNC and endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. She, she gave up her second-in-command position at the DNC. She gave that up to endorse Bernie Sanders for president because of all the corrupt stuff that the DNC was doing. By the way, uh, after the primaries, Deborah, Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, had to resign from the DNC in shame uh, because of corruption. That tells you a little something, doesn't it? So that's Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, who, what else is, well, Tulsi Gabbard's also a veteran. Uh, she is a veteran. Uh, she's a congresswoman from Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District. She's a uh, supporter of Medicare for All. Uh, she's against foreign wars. You know, again, she's a veteran. She serves on the uh, military or the uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Committee in the House. She uh, has seen the cost of wars and she is a big advocate for peace. So Tulsi Gabbard uh, decided to run for president in 2020. She's currently running for president. And wouldn't you know it, everybody uh, in the establishment tries to smear Tulsi Gabbard. And it's just incredible. So recently, uh, Hillary Clinton was in, she had an interview, and she said, I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. Mm -hmm. She's a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of 
sites and bots and other ways of supporting her mm -hmm. so far. This is incredible to me, absolutely incredible to me. You know, Tulsi Gabbard is a is a veteran. She serves this country. What what you know? So she serves this country diligently, and Hillary Clinton is going out and smearing Tulsi Gabbard and calling her a Russian asset. The only reason why Hillary Clinton uh, is doing that is because uh, Tulsi Gabbard is anti-war, the Clinton Foundation. You know, it's interesting. There's, just, there's, there's a poll that was done by the Hillary Clinton campaign before she ran for president in 2016 that said, hey, what do you think Hillary Clinton's biggest weakness is? And one of the options in that poll was the Uranium One deal that, Hil that, that Hillary and Bill Clinton had where they moved a lot of the uranium production to Russia. And that ended up being the number one issue that people had with Hillary Clinton was the Uranium One deal. So what did Hillary Clinton do? Well, she took that, that issue, which is her connection to Russia, and she pitted, she pitted it on her opponent, Donald Trump. That's what Hillary Clinton did. Typical politician corrupt stuff, right? Um, so now what she's doing is she's trying to pit that on Tulsi Gabbard because Tulsi Gabbard is against foreign intervention, um, and it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's just absolutely incredible how the corporate establishment likes to use Russia as a scapegoat for all their problems, right? Oh, here's somebody that's running anti-war. Oh, she's a Russian, right? They called Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, in 2016. They called her a Russian, which is interesting that they would go after her because Jill Stein was the only candidate in 2016 who called for a recount in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the three states that won Donald Trump the election. That was Jill Stein. Uh, again, another, another hero politically that uh, they try to smear and call a Russian. So Hillary Clinton smeared Tulsi Gabbard, called her a Russian. Absolutely no merits behind these smears. Uh, and I'd also like to point out that um, it's interesting that they interviewed Hillary Clinton on the 2020 election. Yes, let's take advice from the person that couldn't even win to Donald Trump, right? She lost to a game show host. Let's ask her for advice on how to win, right? I mean, that, that makes no sense. <laughs> So yes, that's that's the whole thing with Tulsi Gabbard. I would definitely recommend if you if, if you're interested in Tulsi Gabbard, check her out. Donate to her campaign. She's a fantastic candidate, wonderful progressive. She's my number two pick for 2020, and uh, I'll definitely be supporting Tulsi Gabbard if you know it comes down to that. Um, but yes, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's going to do it for today's, or I should say, this week's edition of the Liberal Bull Show podcast. I hope you all enjoyed. If you did, please be sure to follow this podcast on whichever platform that you enjoy. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, I will see everybody later. Mm -hmm.